The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Olivia Baker, and today's scripture reading is Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Olivia. Good morning, folks. Great to be with you, as always. We had a lovely early service, and it's also good to see your faces, uh, or half of your faces in some some instances, but uh, it's really wonderful to see people gradually, slowly uh, inching back. Uh, we're happy to report that in almost three months of being back in person, we have zero record of any transmissions of COVID-19 thanks to congregational participation uh, in all the protocol that, that, uh, that we've worked hard to set up. So thank you for, for partnering uh, with us in that. We're also um, uh, you know, grateful to continue to be able to provide uh, all that we do in here online uh, through live stream and, and also replay uh, for those who just uh, don't feel safe enough to return to to gatherings. Uh, greetings to those of you on the, the breezeway. I see you out there through the doors uh, outside and, and uh, just grateful to be uh, in community with all of you. Uh, before I get into the sermon, just want to affirm the reality that God continues to work through 
pandemics, and uh, one such evidence for us is Christ Pres, as we, we had just under 80 people participate in the most recent uh, new member seminar, CPC 101, and uh, we look forward on, uh, on September the 13th to a new uh, batch of members that have uh, done CPC 101 uh, mostly through Zoom and, and creative ways, but uh, if you have taken CPC 101 in the past and would like to get in on this joining uh, uh, season on, again, September the uh, 13th. We would welcome you to do that. Just email care at christprez.org. Uh, also pleased to report that uh, we got approval from the Nashville Presbytery for the fourth congregation or the fourth location of Christ Presbyterian Church to be located in downtown Nashville. Downtown Nashville. Uh, like walkable from Ryman and state government and TPAC, etc. cetera. Uh, Micah Edmondson will lead that effort. He will be the lead pastor of that congregation and uh, be a cross-cultural effort. And the name of the congregation will be CPC Koinonia. And uh, there's going to be more on that coming up. But we're very excited that even in the midst of a time such as this, we get to be part of God's work in these ways. And so uh, I'd like to turn our attention now to the text that Olivia just read for us. And our sermon title is Nostalgia and Future Glory. So let's, let's listen to Brene Brown and the way that she defines nostalgia. I think this is a good one. Nostalgia is a dangerous form of comparison. Think about how often we compare our lives to a memory that nostalgia has so completely edited that it never really existed. And one of the premier examples of this definition of nostalgia, of an edited past, uh, is Israel. When they uh, are released from the oppressive grip of the Egyptian pharaoh after years of slavery, plagues, poverty, forced labor under a tyrant. And God works this amazing, epic, historic miracle by parting the Red Sea uh, and the whole nation of Israel behind the leadership of Moses walks through the sea with walls of water on, on either side and escapes. And they're out in the wilderness and they're liberated. And it only took two and a half months since that day that God split the sea open for Israel to start grumbling. Even after an epic rescue. They're grumbling. Grumbling because they're thirsty. Okay, God's going to solve that problem. God causes sweet water to flow, to gush out of a rock. Another miracle, just to remind you, Israel, that God is with you and that we're doing the right thing by moving in this direction. Another sign along the journey. But after the sweet water is provided, they don't express thanks. They don't sort of reignite their faith. They just add to their grumbling, well, we're hungry too. As if there's no expectancy that God's not going to do with food what he just did with water. And God in his grace provides manna from heaven. But the grumbling people, and this can be found in, in Exodus chapter 16, uh, they get a bit of toxic nostalgia. They have a bit of edited history of their own. And it says that the whole congregation, everybody, the whole congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, 
when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You got to feel for Moses and Aaron, right? They're just doing what God had tasked them with doing. Moses was a reluctant leader, and yet he's doing exactly what God had told him. And there's all these miracles, and Moses is assuring uh, Israel with the word of the Lord. If, you keep, if we keep continuing to obey and just do what the Lord says with the next step, he has got us. And, and what he gets in return for his fidelity to the Lord is more and more grumbling. And a people who describe their years of slavery and bondage as if they were eating at Cain Prime every night. Meat pots and bread to the full. Yeah, this happens, you know, uh, every time there's an election cycle, every four years or so, half of the country is grumbling at some leader. It happened in 016, it's happening now, it's going to happen in 2024. Half of the country is grumbling about a leader, and in their hearts, singing some version of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Woodstock. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. We've got to get ourselves back to the better days. And they're singing about Woodstock, right? I mean, what's, what could be bad about Woodstock? All of those epic musicians, uh, you know, making history, you know, big, huge crowds of people, you know, friends, and, 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 and just, just paradise, right? And, and what it edits out, though, what the Woodstock nostalgia edits out is this, all the mud, all of the acid trips and venereal diseases contracted, etc., and edited history. We all have nostalgia, don't we? But what we've got in front of us is a prayer. It's incredibly realistic about the past, about our own hearts, and about the future that's promised. So let's start with this. Here we have in front of us a prayer, unlike the people of Israel, that's honest about real pain. It starts this way, verse one, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships that David endured. Now, David did endure a whole lot of sorrows. He had mother-father wounds, the 27th Psalm. He talks about how his own mother and father had forsaken him. He had all kinds of relational wounds. King Saul, his predecessor, uh, you know, due to no fault of David's, uh, put a bounty on his head and was aggressive toward young David. Jonathan's best, or David's best friend Jonathan dies uh, in battle, so he has that heartache. And then later on, after David becomes king, his own son, his own flesh and blood, Absalom, uh, stages a revolt against him, tries to take his throne. Then we have Michael, his wife, who uh, it says, calls him a vulgar man at a certain point. And the reason why she calls him a vulgar man is because she thinks he's a bit too serious about his faith. He's a religious fanatic, which makes him vulgar. He's not erudite and sophisticated enough, apparently, for her. And then here we've got verses 3 through 10, David's big dream, his, you know, what business people call a, a BHAG, a B-H-A-G, a big, hairy, audacious goal to, to build the temple this enormous 
temple in Jerusalem. And he gets all the way through the fundraising campaign, gets all the materials, and then he dies. Dream unfulfilled. So that might have been a little bit of a God wound for his dream to do something great for God to go unfulfilled. And then in verse 8, it talks about the ark, which was a little box that, that, that much like the Lord's Supper, was a symbol representing the real presence of God among his people. And there's a, a point at which David is, is bringing the ark back to, the Jeru- to, to Jerusalem. And one of his good friends, Uzzah, grabs the ark while the ark is, is falling to the ground to keep the ark from falling to the ground. And he just drops dead on the spot. And that upsets David. You know, Teresa of Avila, uh, there's this, this anecdote about Teresa of Avila when she fell in the mud one day. And in the mud, she says that she heard the voice of Jesus that she always hears when things go poorly. She says she heard the voice of Jesus saying, this is how I treat those that I call my friends. To which she answered Jesus, well, it's no wonder that you have so few friends. Does God ever fail your expectations? Does he ever not come through in the way that you think he should? C.S. Lewis wrote about that experience in A Grief Observed. It's it's sort of his his diary of grief uh, as he uh, goes through the the death uh, experience of his wife, Joy, from, from violent form of cancer. And here's one of the things that he says in A Grief Observed. When you're happy so happy that you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you're tempted to feel that God's claims upon you are an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. It's just like Elie Wiesel, uh, the young Jewish boy, when he he looks back on his years in the Holocaust. And he says, I was alone, terribly alone in a world without God and without love and without mercy. It's a very real feeling Does God allow us such opportunity to to vent our pain like that? Is there some sort of irreverence in there? Or or, or is there something right about venting our pain? Well, if we go to the 13th Psalm, which is the Psalm of David, you hear the cry, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Or if we go to Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we hear Jesus from the cross praying those same words from the 22nd Psalm. So so of course, Jesus prays these words. Then then there is an occasion where where it's actually not just allowed, but but right and good to to vent the, the, the pain, the agony that's there. But here in this Psalm, what we get is an opportunity to discern between what makes a grumbler as opposed to what makes a worshiper. A grumbler will vent their pain like the people of Israel did to Moses and Aaron. That was really them taking a shot at God 
But because they, they were maybe afraid to take a shot directly at God, they, they, they took shots directly at Moses and Aaron instead. In the same way that so many of us blame politicians for, for all the problems out in the world, we never look in the mirror asking ourselves, how am I a contributor to all of these problems? Are all the problems in the world out there? Are all of my problems out there caused by other people? Am I just a victim of everybody else's wrongness? And that's what the people of Israel are doing. They're, 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 they're claiming victimhood. They're venting their pain and they stay there. They vent, they lash out, but they stay there. They never move on from venting and lashing out. They grumble for 40 solid years in the wilderness. But what does a worshiper do? A worshiper also vents their pain. We see this in the Psalms. We see this with Jesus on the cross. But they take the disappointment that they feel. They they come around at some point, worshipers do, and they take the disappointment that they feel and they put it inside the context of trust, of faith, in who God is. That he's wise, that he's good, and that he is in control of all things at all times. And if if we had access to everything God sees and to everything that God knows, we actually would understand the things that our limited vision cannot understand. That's, That's how a worshiper processes disappointment and pain, as opposed to a grumbler who just stays in a settled place of cynicism. A grumbler will act like a probation officer, and those who are put on probation are God, and anybody else within range. In this case, Moses and Aaron. God and anybody on the side of God is held to probation by the grumbler. And the grumbler asks constantly, not only what what has God done for me, but what has God done for me lately? And we see a vast difference between Job and his wife. They both go through horrific suffering. Job's impulse is, is to locate his disappointment, and he had great disappointment, inside this statement. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord at all times. Job's wife, same set of circumstances, curse God and die. What makes the difference? Well, the, the, the grumbler puts conditions on their worship. The worshiper places no conditions on their worship because they go to God not to get something else. They go to God to get God. The Lord is my shepherd, David says. I shall not want, or as the, as the little girl misquoted Psalm 23 to her church, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. That's the worshiper's posture. Everything else is gravy. It's right here, a hint of of, of what I'm talking about here is in verse seven, where it says, let us worship at the Lord's footstool. The highest place that we get with God is right below his feet. We don't look him eye to eye. We don't even look him in the belly button. The highest place that we can get with God is right beneath the lowest part of him. That's what a worshiper does. That's why we kneel. That's why we get low, especially during confession. Adolf Schlatter, the the great German theologian, was once 
once asked a gotcha question, you know, do you stand on the word of God, Dr. Schlatter? To which he answered, no, I don't stand on the word of God. I stand under the word of God. The psalmist places no conditions on God. In all of his hardships, he stays put because the Lord is his shepherd. He's like, Peter, where else can I go? You have the words, Lord, of eternal life. There's no place else to go. The non-negotiable for the worshiping person is the care, sovereignty, and wisdom of God. The non-negotiable for the grumbler is Give me the good life as I define the good life. It's two vastly different postures of heart. So we've got to be honest about real pain and and, and locate it properly, but then we've got to also be honest about real grace. That the only reason why any of us is here today is not because we're so committed and spiritual that we got ourselves up and got ourselves here. It's because God got us here. It's because God oriented the disposition of our hearts to make us want to be with him and to make us want to be with each other. Honest about real grace. It's interesting, in verses two and five, the Lord is referred to as the mighty one of Jacob. Now, who was Jacob? Jacob was a habitual liar. His father named him Jacob, which means deceiver. Can you imagine that? Before you even get a chance, your own father pronounces a curse over you. Your own father lays his own contempt on you before you even have a chance by giving you a curse name, deceiver. Let's call him that. And and the favoritism plays itself out where, where Esau and Jacob, Esau is clearly the favored son and, and Jacob is, is just kind of left to fend for himself and he spends you know, the good part of his young adult life fighting to find that paternal blessing that he never got from his dad. And part of that fight, he became a deceiver and liar himself. And God initiates a wrestling match with Jacob knocks him to the ground, dislocates his hip, gives him a limp for the rest of his life, which was actually not the end of Jacob's flourishing, but the beginning of Jacob's flourishing. And he becomes the father of Israel. And and what does God say to him after giving him that limp? I'm gonna give you a new name. You are no longer deceiver. You are now Israel. You're gonna be the father of the 12 tribes. You're in the line of Abraham. And then it says in verse one, again, remember, O Lord, in David's favor. Yes, David, the one who'd committed adultery and murder. The one who in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew's gospel is described this way. David gave birth to Solomon by the wife of Uriah the Hittite. There's no sanitizing the reality of what's happened in the history of God's people and what kind of people they have been at certain points in time. Christianity is offensive because of this. It's offensive because only moral failures can receive favor from God 
and any moral failure, including those that you just absolutely can't stand, can receive favor from God. Let's look at those two claims. Only moral failures receive favor from God. So again, on September 13th or 12th or whatever it is, around that time, we're going to receive new members. And the first membership promise is this. It's a question and and the answer is a presumed yes. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except through his sovereign mercy? To get to all the Jesus stuff and, and the be a better person stuff, you have to go through that first. There's no way around humble acknowledgement that, 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 that I don't elevate myself above the footstool of God because I have absolutely no right to. Even at my very best, the prophet Isaiah says, it, it, what I have to offer God is filthy rags compared to what he has offered to me. You know, Jonathan Edwards said this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. Now to some, that statement is an incredible relief. And to others, that statement is a deep offense. There's certain truths that only make sense from the inside of being with Christ. And and they're just repulsive looking at them from the outside. A number of years ago, some of you might be old enough to remember this, the American Music Awards uh, featured a a famous musician singing the hymn, Amazing Grace. But she changed a word. She started the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone like me. And one wonders what John Newton, who wrote the hymn, would think about this significant change of message. Because John Newton was very careful to choose the ugliest word he could think of to describe the person that God saved him from being, a wretch. But John Newton knew himself as a former slave trader, an oppressor, and, 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 and violent man. And he owns it by saying, I was saved from a wretched place. Not someone like me, a wretch like me. Ephesians chapter 2 says to everyone who has placed their faith in Christ, you were dead. You weren't sick. You weren't weak. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. But God made you alive in Christ Jesus. You were dead. God made you alive. Now, now here's, here's the thing. There's, ugly, there's an ugly form of dead and there's a, a pretty form, a beautiful form of dead, right? If you step on a bug or you think about what the, what the guy left on the side of the road in the Good Samaritan parable might have looked like after, after his attackers got finished with him, if he, if he had died, it would have been an ugly form of dead. Like maybe a black eye, you know, maybe some, some cuts and lacerations, maybe a dismembered, you know, ear or something. It would have been ugly. But then there's, there's, um, there's death as we observed uh, before my mother's funeral where 
where they, they honored her memory by, you know, putting on her makeup uh, and, and, you know, putting on her best clothes to, to, to sort of honor the memory of the woman that she was. And she, she was beautiful laying there, but she was no less dead than the man on the side of the road in the Good Samaritan parable. Ugly dead and beautiful dead are both dead. I think that's why Jesus told the put-together religious people that prostitutes were actually entering the kingdom faster than they were. Because prostitutes recognize their need. Prostitutes recognize that the very first offering that God wants is not your tithes, not your impeccable moral record, not your goodness. The first thing that God wants from you is your need. And one of the hymns we sing here regularly goes, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. You know, we get this nostalgia about ourselves. We, we have this edited history of ours, don't we? You know, one of the women in our church uh, was sharing once about a conversation that she had with her aging mother who was getting close to the end of her days and, 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 and she was expressing in grief the pain that she had experienced from her mother all of her years, she and her siblings. And, and at one point she got the courage as her mother you know, started the process of considering her own mortality. She said, Mom, is there anything that you would like to say to, to your children? Do, do you have any regrets? And the mother said, nope, I got it right. You know, we want to edit our histories. We'd rather blame Moses than look in the mirror. We'd rather assume that the problem with the world is always out there and never in here. But here's what the Psalm says, verses 9 and 16, even the clergy, and I would say as clergy, especially the clergy, need clothing from outside or what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, a record that was attained outside of yourself that is put upon you and credited to you through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the son of David. You know, any, only moral failures can receive favor. It's one of the scandalous messages of Christianity. It sets it apart from every other religion that's ever existed. But here's the other thing. Any moral failure can receive favor. There's a church in town. They have this mantra, and it goes like this. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright because of Jesus, and anyone can get in on this. You know, the Christian truth that the world hates the most is the truth that says that we are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. But this very same truth that we are all sinners being a truth that the world hates the most, it's, it's a truth that Christians love the most because it frees us to be honest. It frees us to, 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 to put our shortcoming in the hands of God. The hands of the God that, that Spurgeon described this way. God, the true and living God, loves to forgive more than you love to sin. He loves to forgive more than you love to sin. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. It abounds all the more. Or as the song we sing quite regularly from Matt Boswell and Matt Papa, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. 
This is why you have sinful, forgiven saints shouting for joy. There's, there's no category for boredom with worship. There's no category for boredom with the Bible or with God or with Jesus. There's no category for boredom for these people. None. They're shouting for joy. Why? Because it's right here. The Lord has chosen Zion, his people. His people he has made his dwelling place, the object of his deepest desire. People, deceivers like Jacob, adulterers and murderers like David, he he, he has made them the object of his desire, his deepest desire. This is why Christians should not be repulsed by sin talk. Because without your sin, there is no gateway to Jesus. There is no gateway to mercy without your sin. Your sin is the thing that unlocks the mercy of Christ. Do you get that? Your sin and your sorrows. Those are the things that unlock the mercy and favor of Christ towards you. Christians should never be repulsed by talk of depravity and corruption and sin. It's not only dishonest, it's self-injurious. Listen to what Dane Ortland says about the mercy of God. This is beautiful. The fact that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe the most make him hug the hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It's unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but it's the very thing that he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. Finally, honest about real limitation. Remember David's enormous goal to, to build the temple He did all the prep work and then he died. There's a lesson there for us that that, that we all have big dreams. We're made in the image of God, so of course we have huge dreams. But we also live in a fallen world that's that's been assaulted by the effects of sin. Work has been cursed. Relationships and family have been cursed. The very creation itself is under a curse. Curse. And so our dreams for a better world are always going to be much more than we'll ever be able to accomplish. Been three humanist manifestos written by the most optimistic scientists, academics, politicians in the world. We're going to make, we're going to combine our collective awesomeness to make a better world. We're going to end war. We're going to end poverty. We're going to end sickness and disease and pandemics. We're going to end all these things. It's what you hear at, 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 at a, uh, at a uh, Democratic or Republican convention. We heard it last week. 
This guy over here, he's gonna continue to wreck your life. This guy right here, he's the answer to everything. And then we're gonna hear the same thing again, just in the other direction in just a few days. This guy over here, oh, he's gonna destroy the world. This guy over here, oh, he's the answer to everything. Here's what W.H. Rogers says about our optimism about ourselves and about our politicians. The rule of man has been plagued with irreconcilable ambitions and conflicts of interests. Humanity has looked for peace and found war. He has talked of brotherhood and love and has seen hatred and persecution. He has spent billions on war, millions for pleasure, and only a few paltry thousands for the spreading of the gospel. As it was, so it is, and will be until the king comes back. Or as Chuck Colson put it, the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. Honest people know better. People with their eyes open to history know better. Even the life of Jesus, the incarnate God, who put creation into existence by speaking words, even his life ended on a bloody cross. It's this remarkable paradox. The Bible says, keep fighting poverty, keep fighting against injustice, and the poor you're always going to have with you. You're not going to fix it. You can't fix this. And Jesus says, it's remarkable, at the end of time, you know, the, the, the gospel is always saying, work for a better world, or, you know, follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. Just get, keep doing it. Keep investing your energy. And you know what's, what's going to be there at the end? Still no temple for you that you dreamed about. Why? Because the sign that I am about to return, Jesus says, is there are going to be wars, rumors of wars, violence everywhere. You can't fix this. But he will. I love that it talks here about the perpetuity of David's throne. Now, David is dead and gone. But the son of David, the one who refers to himself as the son of David, is risen and returning. You know, Isaiah chapter 9 forecasts the Messiah who would come and reign on David's throne. And here's what it says the government will be on his shoulders. The government, you guys. Rule of everything. The government will be on his shoulders. No conventions necessary. No hype talks and pep talks. No nostalgia about how great of a this, that, or the other they were when we were growing up or how great of a this, that, or the other the last time they were in power. No edited history. Just a reigning Messiah, the government on his shoulders, And here's what I love. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Every day better than the day before. Growing younger, not older. Growing stronger, not weaker. Every person, place, and thing under his reign forever. Going from strength to strength to strength to strength to strength. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about our most cherished nostalgic memories. These memories, Lewis says, are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we have never yet visited. 
The key word there is yet. The key word there is yet. There is a nostalgia, an honest version, a true version that the one who is the truth invites us to set our minds and hearts on. And it's not a nostalgia about an edited past. It's a nostalgia about a promised future. A future to which this table, by the way, directs us. This table does everything that this psalm encourages of us. It takes an honest look back at real pain. In this, we remember his death. It also takes an honest look at real grace. There's no way we would have a place or a seat at this table had we not acknowledged how short we fall, that the highest place we can go is under his feet because of sin. And the reality of the future reign of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We remember his death until he comes. So can I invite you to stand with me briefly and we will profess our faith together as we look to the screen together. And by the way, this this profession will also mark out who is invited to the table and who should refrain. If you don't believe the things that we're about to read, uh, if you don't identify with them, the last thing we want to do is ask you to participate in something you don't believe in. We don't want to insult your integrity in that way. We just invite you to consider these things and and refrain unless or until you come to a time where your heart is settled in believing these things. And so, so let's answer this question together. What right do we have to dine at the table of Jesus? As children of God, through faith in Jesus, we have every right to dine at his table. What do we mean by this? We mean that Jesus came not for the strong, but for the weak, not for the righteous, but for sinners, not for the self-sufficient, but for those who know they need rescue, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and frail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior, Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. For he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the table. We thank you for the bread and the cup, which so much like the ark of God are our visible representation of the reality of your very real presence with us that frees us to be honest about real pain. You are there with us in our sorrows to be honest about real grace because only moral failures can receive favor and any moral failure can receive favor from a God whose name is mercy. And we can be honest about our real limitations. The pressure is off of us to make things better. You welcome us to participate in what you're doing in the world, but you've taken full ownership of ultimate outcomes. We thank you that the pressure is off. And now through the bread and the cup, as Lewis said, would you give us a deeper scent of the flower we have not found 
a deeper echo, a louder echo of the tune we have not heard. And even more convincing news from a country we've never yet visited. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.